Welcome to Celestial Small Talk with Alice and CJ. Celestial Small Talk refers to the big ideas, profound revelations, and deep connections that are created in the briefest of encounters. It is often in these moments that an imperceptible shift in thought can bring about the biggest change, helping us to more fully embody our intuition. We strive to inspire, illuminate, question, provoke, and spark the unique constellation within. Welcome back to Celestial Small Talk with CJ and Alice. Today, we have a very special guest. Uh, Tristan is joining us, and Tristan is a buddy that we know through Improv 201 and 301. Tristan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, wonderful. Alice, how are you? I'm great. I'm pumped. I'm ready to go. I'm super excited. I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but I'm so ready. (laughs) Yeah, and that's okay. We just did a quick little warm up off air um, with five things that you find at the top of a tree, under a bed and under a driver's car seat. So we're we're starting out really, really strong and we're going to see what else we uncover as we go. So when I was reading your bio, Tristan, you had so many different cool adventures and things that you've gone on. And so when I was thinking about all of those rich experiences, the idea of abundance came to me. So I lit an abundance candle to kind of set the stage for what we are going to be talking about. Just taking a moment to ground down where we are. If you take a nice deep breath in and exhale it out. May an abundance of goodness flow freely into my life. Allow me to be receptive to the treasures that present themselves, enriching my life's journey. And breathe in one more time. And exhale. So Tristan, tell us a little bit about your life's journey, just a background synopsis. Uh, I grew up, I was born in Houston, Texas, to a Texan father and a French-Canadian mother. They met on a beach in Hawaii while they were both on vacation, uh, traveling. So traveling was always a big thing for them. When I was six years old, my dad, who was a traveling salesman at the time, was awarded a job over in London. So for four years, I basically for elementary school, I grew up in London with my sister. Um, we traveled a lot while we were over there, kind of had a nomadic family, and we came back to the States. And uh, after that, I kind of moved all over. I've done a bunch of different things. I'm in the second phase of my career. Uh, I guess a career pivot is what I, I started out in oceanography uh, and science. And I've since pivoted to like a more design and development in the web industry, improv and laughs along the way. So I still try and keep that as part of my life. But yeah, I think that's where the, maybe the abundance of experiences comes in and in, in the bios. I just, my parents have always kind of instilled in me the desire for travel and experiencing new things and meeting new people and, you know, thinking about things in different ways. Very grateful to have good parents. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think that the gift of travel is such a privilege that um, enriches our life experiences so much. And it leads us to lots of different people that we get to meet and learn from. Um, You alluded to off air that you had an experience with someone that kind of changed your thought process about something. So just dive in. Um, You said you weren't sure if this was going to make sense. So we may ask questions (laughs) along along the way, but we're just excited to hear what you have to say. 
Okay, so I'm going to start with the last part first, and then I'm going to give you the first part last, and then I'm going to hopefully shoot an arrow through that to make sense at the, at the goal end of this. So I read a book called The Sex Lives of Cannibals. It was a fantastic read for anybody who likes the ocean, and it was about a guy who followed his girlfriend after grad school into the South Pacific. He was a writer and she had a job in the Peace Corps. And one of the things that he wrote about was the different experiences that he had with the mindsets of the local people. I think he was in Caribas. And for example, he he said that, you know, they had no communications. The fishermen would just go on boats and they would just go out fishing, but they would get lost at sea for weeks at a time. And it happened quite often because they would go from one island to another to try and sell and a squall would come up or they get drifted and, and they just like float on their boats. And eventually they all came home. And he said this one guy was gone for three weeks and, you know, he only had enough food on his boat for two days. And it was amazing. He was like, well, tell me the story. How'd you survive? And he's like, well, I just I hung off the front end of my boat. It was just like a little rowboat. He's like, I just hung off the front of my boat all day long to stay out of the sun. And I had my fishing gear because I was, you know, selling fish. So I just I fished. And the guy was like, he said, well, what about sharks? Like, didn't you see any sharks out there? And he said that it was the, the reaction of the native islander that, that really shocked him the most because the, the islander said, yeah, but I couldn't catch him because my line was too weak. And he, the writer was like, at that point, I knew I would never, ever have the same mindset because I was thinking I would be terrified of the sharks, right? Danger to me. But the islander was actually like, oh, a prize that I cannot achieve. I like that story because it, you know, it shows you the differences that you can have, like your, your perspective changes so much in the same situation. So that's the second part. First part is I was in Florida shooting pool. I guess I was like 25. I was shooting pool at a Friday happy hour that they had with professors and undergrads and graduate students. It was just kind of like a, you know, schmooze uh, fest. And at the time I wanted to move to Hawaii. And so there was a job opportunity at the University of Hawaii that I was applying for. And I, I got an interview for it. And I was a little bit worried about, you know, the competition and all this stuff. And I was talking to this one professor who actually worked at the University of Hawaii. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, one thing you, you have to realize about Hawaii is that almost everybody who like throws out applications for either college or like jobs out there, when they're in that kind of process, it's not too much effort for them to also throw an additional application to like a wild shot, you know, a dream and a prayer hey, you know, maybe I'm going to go to this particular school like locally, but since I have my college application, why don't I apply to Hawaii to see if I get in, right? And then even if they're accepted, you know, the logistics of it really don't work out. They don't want to go live on a rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? For lots of reasons. And so he's like the same thing. So job interviews. And I was like, yeah, but it's still a lot of people, right? The competition is pretty high. And he's like, well, you have to understand that when you're actually the best at what you do, the competition just falls away. And so you're above the competition. And that's just something you'll notice across life. And so that changed my life forever because I started realizing that if, if you could become an expert at something, if you could get so good, you leave the pack, right? It's like the Peloton or like races. You can always see like the, the leaders kind of separate from the pack. And so it taught me, don't focus on what the pack does, focus on what the, what the leaders are doing. Going back to the mindset and perspective of the first metaphor, that was kind of the time that I had in my life where I felt like my mindset shifted from the sharks are scary to the sharks are food. Very cool. I see you're writing furiously, Alice. I want to see what you wrote down about what Tristan had to say. I'm actually collecting 
different things that I'm aligning from his chart and the story and just like this journey, just so that I can share later. But this is a very interesting and I feel like it aligns a lot with what we've always talked about in terms of believing in your ability and your powers to accomplish or pursue anything ever that you want. And I love how both of these stories conceptualize that idea into like more tangible examples. That's what I have. It's really cool. Yeah. I like the idea of, especially as you said, like as you get farther into a field and you particularly mentioned Tristan, that you are kind of at a a pivot right now with your career. So have you found that you went from being like the shark in the first half of your career to now maybe still being a part of the pack? Um, Has that, has that sort of changed in your pivot in your professional life? That's a good question. So I'm actually eight years into my pivot. So there was definitely a time where I felt like I was getting chewed alive, right? When I moved to Sacramento was when I sort of began moving into the web industry. And at the time I wanted to become a graphic designer, but I realized very quickly that I didn't have a portfolio to keep up with all the students that were coming out of design school. And so I had to sort of rely on what I could take from my previous career, which was coding. And then I went to, I went further into web development because there were fewer people there. And actually that's funny because that was a very conscious decision I made at the time. And a lot of it was based on where I was in the pack. You know, I was just kind of like a middling to crappy graphic designer. You know, there were a lot of people that were much better than me and it it would take me a lot longer to get there versus how much more advanced I was in the actual like, you know, coding parts of of my skill sets. So what did end up happening with the Hawaii thing? Did you give us a conclusion there? They offered me the job. I turned it down because they they were offering me like $15,000 less than I was actually making in Florida. And then with the um, cost of living change from a place like Florida to a place like Honolulu, it just, it wasn't feasible. You know, part of me was very proud of myself for achieving a dream. Like, you know, I had that spot, that anchor, like Hawaii has always been a place It's like my happy place. I'm sure it's a lot of people's happy place, but I really enjoy being out there on the islands and like having the opportunity to be there was awesome. And the way that I have found that my life unfolds is that it's usually those little steps that I take because it's not that step in particular, but it's like the next step that I really want. I can't get to the second step if I don't take the first one. And so it was kind of difficult for me to turn it down in my heart, but I knew like in my head that I was going to be destitute. I had to turn it down because it wasn't at the level that I felt that I deserved to enter. Yeah, that's a tough thing to reconcile, especially with the expertise and experience that you're bringing, you know, to that opportunity. But that also makes me think of the parable the, the from the story about the fisherman who just like laid off the edge of the boat and was like, I made, what was it, two days worth of food last four weeks and was able to avoid all of these unforeseen sort of exposure elemental things and came back and was alive and thriving and everything. Um, And I wonder kind of about shifting that mindset of scarcity of, okay, they didn't offer me this. And, you know, these are the reasons why I have to turn it down because of cost of living, et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder if shifting that mindset to one of abundance where maybe you could make do with less as opposed to more, it, it just makes me think about that. Yeah, it's definitely, if there is a multiverse, that was somewhere I made the choice to go. I do think that everything happens for a reason. And at any point when you make a decision, there's always different forces that influence your decision and whether or not he could have made 
do, whether or not, you know, you could have found other opportunities in Honolulu. I think ultimately where you are right now is where you should be. And I think that there are so many connections and knowledge and skills and things that you picked up along the way because of that decision. And I mean, I'm a little biased, but I'm glad that, you know, that happened and it kind of led you on this path that along ours and we got to meet. That's really kind of you. Thank you. I have to say uh, one of the reasons I moved to the West Coast was partially because, you know, that's one less cross-country flight I had to take (laughs) in order to get there, right? Oh, that's a major consideration for sure. Like, (laughs) you know, when your, your proximity to different places determines, you know, your privilege in being able to travel to those places, right? Like people on the West Coast don't necessarily go to Europe all the time because you have a whole continent to get through and then another ocean. And it's the same thing from Texas or Florida to Hawaii that you have a whole continent and part of an ocean to go through. So how do you think you've grown from this uh, experience, maybe uh, in turning down the job and in in being here and in sort of like shifting your mindset to this one of, you know, viewing things as leader versus the pack, uh, shark as predator versus shark as nourishment? I think that... You know, awareness for me is always kind of the first step. Sometimes you get a choice that scares you. And when choices scare me now, I try and think, why am I scared of this? Usually I have found that the scariest choices have the greatest reward to them. And so it's for that reason that I I kind of challenge myself to be aware of what is scary because I don't want to go through life avoiding the possible biggest wins I could ever have. It's kind of pushed me into a sphere of it's not okay to not accept a challenge in an internal, like an internal challenge. I tried not to let myself run away from the hard choices. In my head, I'm, I'm like making a parallel to like stage fright. You know, a lot of people mm-hmm. don't want to get, you know, public speaking is terrifying to many people. But somebody told me one time that they saw stats that said most people in America are more afraid of public speaking than death. Interesting and yeah, morbid. Yeah, I know it is, right? It's like, because death is a foregone conclusion. But like getting up and exposing who you are to strangers, like it's terrifying because something inside you is scared of rejection, maybe, or judgment. And sometimes people are awful. So it's like valid fears, you know, you can, you can totally get up uh, and, and get, you know, that kind of backlash. But what I have found in my life is that the world tends to open up and provide only after I have shown the world who I am. Like, I have to take the first step. I have to step on stage and say, like, this is me. This is what I believe in. This is my heart. These are my thoughts. And after that, that's when opportunities arise. Friendships happen. Paths open up. Windows become doors. That kind of stuff. So I don't pretend to say that that is how everybody's life goes. But I've just noticed across my life that that's the way it is for me. So challenging myself to to address the internal fear pushing myself to get out there usually is the way that I have to, it's like the method, I guess, the method to the way. No, for sure. And I think that that is something that you learn as you get older, right? There's the famous quote by, was it Michael Jordan? Like you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take. And yeah. it's the same idea. Like if you never are willing to show what you're capable of, then how can you expect to have a deep 
connection with someone or an authentic, you know, way to show up to someone. It's those trials and tribulations that lead you to that conclusion that, oh, I actually have to be vulnerable and I actually have to express, yeah, my thoughts and fears and everything in order for me to be able to work through them as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. A lot of us are really afraid to let life happen to us because there's so much uncertainty in everything, especially when you are deciding to show up and be vulnerable and be seen for who you are. Definitely there's rejection. Definitely there's judgment, especially for Americans. We do have that scarcity culture and we have major judgment culture that affects a lot of the rates of mental health issues, all of those things. I think it's just stemmed from the culture that, you know, it's been around for so long. Just like conversations like this for people who have learned that nothing's going to happen to me unless I'm actually doing something about it. Nothing's going to happen to me unless, unless I take a leap of faith, then we'll have more magic in the world, you know? Definitely. And that made me think of <laughs> Finding Nemo, where Nemo's dad, Marlin, is like, I promise I won't let anything happen to you. And later in the film, when he repeats that to Dory, Dory's like, huh, you can't not let anything happen to him. Then like nothing will ever happen to him. Like not so fun for a little whatever she calls him, Groucho at that point. <laughs> you can't be 100% shielded from everything in the world. And what I think you're saying, Tristan, is that you don't want to be, right? Like you, you have to be able to go through some of these things in order to get that bigger reward, which is the growth, the expansion that kind of comes after that contraction. I agree. I work with a photographer who cracks me up all the time because he, uh, he always says, you have to suffer for art. <laughs> I hate that mentality so much. <laughs> it's more because of capitalism than anything else that we have to suffer for art, but... <laughs> I digress. Alice, are we on to astrology yet? You want to talk a little bit about Tristan and, and what you found out about him? I wouldn't say found out about him. It's sort of, you know, I mean, astrology, this is just like a like an idea. Like your chart is like a promise to unfold, but we all have free will and we all get to decide, you know, our next decision and we're going to suffer consequences. But, you know, majority of the time I can tell genetically or um, generally how this would play out in a person. And, you know, I've known you for a year and a half, two years, including COVID warp time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I've, I sort of uh, got to experience you in more of a social setting and, you know, getting to know you as a friend. But this chart that I'm looking at sort of showed me more what's happening internally to you, what, what sort of unfolds um, as you grow up. And so I'm just mostly focusing on the spirituality aspect of it, because this is kind of the topic that we're talking about and how this journey has been for you. And the first thing I notice in your chart is you have Neptune in your first house. First house is the house of self, body and identity. And Neptune is very dreamy. It's Neptune's ocean. Neptune is psychic. And you know, there's idealism and things like that. And there could be two different things that comes out of this. It could be sensitivity to psychic, like you could potentially be able to predict something to happen. You could be able to read people's, you know, mind in a sense, but also could be deception or confusion. And this Neptune's actually opposing your Mars. What it's telling me is there's a balance between practicality and the idealism. I feel like that 
sort of, it came through when you're talking about the story about Hawaii and how you were dreaming, you were idealizing, you were thinking about this possibility of living in Honolulu, but you make sure to also be practical about it. And I like that. And I love that how, how much ocean came out of what we were talking about. And I was like, well, that's Neptune right there in his first house. It's like everywhere you go, you kind of put yourself really close to the water. I see that there's North Node in your 12th house. North Node is like what you aim to do and 12th house is the hidden realm the other world somewhere out there so this could be escapism this could also be like you just like to pick up and move you don't enjoy being bogged down in one place too much your moon in your seventh house here in gemini tells me that you have an emotional emphasis on building and maintaining one-on-one partnership. So moon is very up and down. It, it has phases. So usually your mood sort of shift when something happens, your like major relationships it could be good friends. It could be marriage, it could be girlfriend. It could be anything, you know, major relationship, not just acquaintances that you see every day. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that I see came out, which was what we actually talked about was your 10th house is in Virgo and your 10th house is your career and your public image. And it is ruled by Mercury in your third house, in your second house, um, opposing Saturn in your eighth. So the Saturn here sort of slows everything down. You said you were, you were shifting career and a lot of people would be like, oh, you know, that's just like a couple months, you know, a year or something. This has been an eight year transition. It explains so much with like this Saturn energy, like it slows things down. It's like you're making sure that everything's going according to plan and there's things like that. So yeah, the eight years pivot is the Saturn opposing Mercury there. And then just another thing that popped up was your sun in your third, which is major focus on intellectuals and communication. And you probably read a whole lot, probably exchange knowledge often. What do you got for us, CJ? Oh, Tristan, did you want to respond first? I just want to say thank you. I've never had an astrology reading anywhere near that deep. I learned a lot about houses just now, so that's cool. Yeah, Alice is pretty talented. Um, She can pick out things that I think a normal astrologer might not see. Um, And she has the added benefit of having known you and gotten to know you over the last little while. So I pulled out a couple of cards while we were talking or while you were talking about some of these things. And I gave Tristan a um, tarot reading, what, like two months ago now, two or three months ago, we all went out and uh, Tristan was practicing I Ching. And so I was explaining a little bit about tarot and he was telling me about I Ching. And we just had this great exchange at a bar while other people were doing karaoke. That was great. Um, And it was really nice because at that point you were in a big transition in your life and, you know, some of the cards came out, gave you some messaging around that. So it was cool to see how the cards that came out just now kind of related to some of those same themes and some things that um, Alice just mentioned as well. The first thing I want to say is that it came out number four, number eight, number four and number eight. Do you have any connection (laughs) with those numbers? Yeah. My lucky number has always been 44. 
Okay. Very cool. So the cards are speaking directly to you, which is very <laughs> awesome. Um, so the first card that came out was the four of clubs. Um, and in this deck that is representative of the wands and wands usually have to do with that creative spark, that drive, that passion and fours are all about stability. So it almost feels like it's counterintuitive, but this was when you were talking about your childhood and traveling a lot. So in that, I kind of saw the stability of the family kind of being the core that allowed for these places that probably have inspired and influenced the rest of your life um, as a result of this. The next card that came out was the eight of spades, which represents the swords. Um, swords generally have to do with our beliefs, our thoughts, our logic. And eights are often a number kind of like taking stock of like what's going on in our life at the time. And what's interesting about this deck of cards, it's the Jane Austen tarot deck, and it has major arcana cards infused into the minor arcana cards. So in this case, the major arcana theme is justice pasted on top of this contemplative, like logic driven card. Uh, so it's all about balance, um, which I felt like it kind of went back to what you were talking about, Alice, with the practicality, like balancing kind of the idealism with um, the practicality, uh, because this, this is the card of balance. Like, how do I take stock of what's currently in my life and what's serving me about what I believe and know to be true, while also making sure that like, I am not like spending all of my time up in my head because that can be detrimental too. The next two cards that came out were of the heart suit and hearts um, in this case represent cups, which is all about emotions and interpersonal relationships. So the four of hearts is all about contemplation. And I know that you are a deep thinker. You look at something and you don't take it at face value. Um, and I think at this point was when you were kind of talking about how this mindset sort of shifted. It was like a before and an after. So you didn't take what you read at face value. You didn't take the um, advice from this. I don't remember if it was an advisor. You took what they said and then you digested it and kind of made it your own. Um, so contemplation is a really big thing for you. And then the eight of hearts that came out um, is also paired with the moon. Um, and the moon is a card that's all about kind of going through cycles and adaptability and sort of refining what you're doing over time. Um, and it's all based on intuition, which it sounds like, you know, you, you spend a lot of time not just acting from the head, but you're also letting your heart lead you as you're going. Um, and the last card that came out was the Jack of Clubs, uh, which again represents wands. And the Jack is card of like, it could be a future you, it could be current you, it could be someone in your life that represents like energy, just like a pure ball of energy who kind of like radiates that out in whatever we do. So that could be in your interpersonal relationships, that could be in what you have a passion for and you want to share with the world. I, I thought that this, the, the, the words that you used before, Alice, about practicality and idealism, like were, you know, hand in hand. And I love the fact that you got two wands. So we're thinking a lot about creativity, drive, and passion, as well as two cups. So you're thinking a lot about like intuition and emotion and that exchange with people. Very cool. 
Nice. Well, we often like to end our interviews thinking about what we are grateful for. So I'll start with Alice. So that way, uh, Tristan, you can kind of see the the model of what we do. Um, or maybe I can go first, Alice, if you're not ready. Go ahead. So I am really grateful for, um, I think just the opportunity to have gotten to know you better, Tristan, because, um, yeah, we were in 201 and then we had the pandemic shutdown and then we started up our 301 class and you weren't there for, I think the first and maybe second one. So you came in on like the second or third one. And I was like, oh man, like, I remember that guy, Tristan, like he was fun in our 201 class. And then the camaraderie we kind of developed over the course of 301 and beyond has just been really invaluable. I know that Alice and I have talked about this too. Like it's so refreshing to have a group of people who are all interested in being goofy and we're introspective as well as funny, as well as you know, just rich individuals. And so it's been really awesome just getting to know you over the last couple of months better. I would say the same thing for both of you. I think that it's really cool to find, uh, I mean, we're adults that play, you know, and unfortunately that gets beaten out of you in our culture a lot of the times. And you just, you know, it's, it's nice to, to find people that want to play. And then I think the other part is that when you do any kind of comedy, it seems like you, you kind of have to understand why things are funny. And, you know, that sort of makes you question things. And I think that that eventually leads you to sort of, you know, facing yourself a little bit and figuring out like why you thought that was funny and why somebody else thought that was funny and yeah I think that it does sort of lend a little bit to introspection to just be strangely enough you know in comedy definitely you have to understand like how people think (laughs) yeah I am grateful for sort of expanding from what you're saying I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to know so many non-judgmental beautiful souls and having the lived memories of all these wonderful times that we laugh together and we show ourselves in different characters and different nature and you know a lot of times we do work out our frustrations and our sadness and all the things that we deal with every day during these practices and I just I'm grateful for having the the space to express myself in that same capacity and I am grateful for this beautiful weather outside and just you know having um having great company today i feel i feel that sort of like anticipation energy that comes when it's your turn at the thanksgiving table and you gotta like (laughs) no pressure no pressure so if i'm gonna put this out there i am most grateful for my children i have a son who's eight years old and a daughter who's six and i i got divorced before the pandemic and they carried me through that and I, I can't even tell you how proud I am of both of those children. They're such wonderful little people. Um, they're kind and they're generous and, um, and they're happy. And just seeing that makes it easier to be a whole human because you're reminded of what innocence looks like and what seeing the world is like with fresh eyes fresh eyes that assume the world is good. They're not cynical. They're not broken. They're not uh, suspicious. You know, they're not um, scarred yet. And so I, I'm very, very grateful for them um, as far as family. And then 
being able to build a community and start to feel a part of the community at, at the comedy spot and with our three own groups and our improv, like that has been something that I absolutely cherish because prior to moving to Sacramento, I mean, once I moved to Sacramento, I didn't really have that. I mean, I had two very young children and that was, they were very close in age. And that, I mean, that consumes your life. So I never had an opportunity to sort of get out there and, and make friends. And I'm, I'm, I have that opportunity now. And I'm so grateful to have found people like you um, that have cross interests, you know, as well. It's, it's cool if some of the people that, you know, I hang out with at the comedy spot, the only thing that we have in common is comedy. That's great. But it's, it's also cool when you find friends that have, you know, other interests as well. Um, so I'm very grateful for both of you too. Uh, thank you for having me on this podcast. It's, uh, it's flattering. I've never been a featured uh, person before. So I appreciate that. I also am grateful for what feels like coming out of the other end of the tunnel with the pandemic. I don't know what things are looking like for you, but we're back at work now where I work and you know, it's yes, it's masks inside and all that stuff, but, and yes, it sucks and nobody likes it, but we do it because it's still better than like being locked in my house. And my only like experience is going to target <laughs> or the grocery store, you know? And I just, it feels like the majority is in the rear view mirror. And I'm starting to see more and more things opening up. And I've just, oh, it feels so good to feel like a little bit of elbow room, you know, now that the skies are clearing. I'm grateful that none of my friends burned down in like their houses burned down and the wildfires yeah. around here. Oh my God, it was terrifying. Yeah, there's a lot to be grateful for right now. Yeah, that's why we always like to end on it because it just reminds us all that, you know, in spite of what's going on, um, there's a lot around us to be grateful for. So thank you also for coming on. Um, I look forward to um, sharing this episode with others as we um, are ready to release it. So have a great day, everyone. And we will see you back on the next episode of Celestial Small Talk. You can reach us at celestialsmalltalk at gmail.com and on Instagram at celestialsmalltalk. Please listen, like, review, share, grow, learn, and love. Until next time.